You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com. And when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention uncommentary, uh, on some books, you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation. But when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check them out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time. And then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you. And he can handle it uh, right there through your email. And uh, it's really, really encouraging to him. And so I encourage you to check them out. Have you ever been reading a news article and a uh, reference to something to do with religion, maybe your denomination or just Christianity in general or Islam or some other religion? And as soon as you read the reference, you're thinking that reporter didn't get it right. Maybe it's so bad you even think they don't even know what they're talking about. Well, my guest today uh, feels your pain. Uh, his name is Jack Jenkins. He's an award-winning religion reporter currently with Religion News Service. He's been with them for about three years, I think. And uh, he does a great job. He covers a lot of stuff, and we'll talk about some of that today. But he bears your concerns. I've seen him uh, on Twitter talking about the need to have dedicated religion reporters so that news agencies or newspapers don't just send a regular reporter to do a story about something that they don't have full knowledge of how maybe the Southern Baptist convention works or something like that. Well, my guest today, if you're on Twitter and you follow anything to do with religion, then my guest today uh, is probably not going to be unfamiliar to you. Jack Jenkins is with RNS and has been for about three years. Uh, he's the author of American prophets, the religious roots of progressive politics, the ongoing fight for the soul of the country published by Harper one not Harper too. So you are like elevated. You were like the top tier <laughs> of Harper numbers. Naturally. Uh, naturally. <laughs> he uh, was in the, in the Harper hierarchy. That's right. The Harper hierarchy. You are Harper one, um, served as senior religion reporter at think progress before RNS, uh, is written for a number of outlets and some big time ones too. Not just, uh, not just a little bitty stuff. Uh, BA from Presbyterian college, master of divinity from Harvard. Uh, you play harmonica and ukulele. Now, I, you know, if you want to, you know, wow us with your rendition of tiptoe through the tulips before we're done, then, uh, <laughs> then Bob Smetana will be desperately jealous that I didn't get a recording I, of him singing. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, he and I have jammed before though. We have, we have had jam sessions. With so. u- ukulele and, and guitar? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, so far they've been virtual. We haven't been able to oh, meet up in person, gotcha. but, uh, we are. We are itching to do it. So. That's awesome. Uh, his website's jackjenkins.me, and he's got a picture of himself up there, and he looks like that guy from Into the Wild that drove off in the woods in Alaska and died. Uh, <laughs> so, Jack Jenkins, welcome to Uncommentary. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, that is that is the only time I've been introduced that way, but I'm going to remember that now. That is that is I I I, I got to go see the movie again. This is this is gonna yeah. <laughs> Oh man. So, uh, r- religion reporting in the United States is a 
big deal. So I don't know, like maybe in Switzerland, it's not a thing. Maybe they don't even talk about it over there. I don't know. But in the United States, you can't get away from the connection between religion and culture, the religion and politics. And you write about both. What kind of drew, did, were you drawn to this or did you like accidentally get a summer job? And then it was like, Hey, I can do this for a living. <laughs> Actually, it's, it is exactly the second thing you, you described. <laughs> um, the, I treat this, I, you know, I grew up, uh, in South Carolina and was surrounded by religion, specifically Christianity, um, throughout my youth. You know, I, mm. you know, I was in church every Sunday, whether you wanted to be or not. Mm. And, um, and, you know, I've, I've only had positive experience with religion. I remain a person of faith, but the, um, you know, in my personal life. But I, what I mean by that is that it was, it was normative to understand that faith played a role in people's everyday lives mm. when I was growing up. And when uh, another thing that, of course, also ended up being an interest of mine, honestly, not until um, later in my the tail end of college and beyond was politics. And just that, you know, for me, it became pretty clear that, um, another thing that impacted people's daily lives were public policies and, you know, elections and the, the consequences and impact of elections. And so, um, you know, I kind of dabbled in politics immediately out of college and then ended up in, um, divinity school. And originally, actually, I was seeking ordination when I first got there. I was taking the scenic route, but I was, I was <laughs> technically in the pool to do that. Um, and it's it's a long involved story, but my my denomination had a minor schism, and so both of us who were in the process kind of had were on pause for a bit there, and so I had to figure out something else to do with my summer, um, and which normally would have been you know doing ordination stuff, mm-hmm. um, but we were all paused while they were working things out, and so uh, I had a buddy who had interned at Religion News Service, oh. and I. Um, and I'd never written a story in my life. I didn't study journalism in undergrad. I, um, you know, I'd, I'd written some blog posts that I was personally very proud of. I'm sure all three people that read them. Amen. Blog, um, blog, bloggers unite. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then uh, when I when I did that, um, I ended up getting a meeting with the editor in chief of Religion News Service at the time, Kevin Ekstrom. And for reasons that are not immediately clear to him or me, he decided to take a risk on me and let me come down to D.C. that summer and intern. It was a really cool time um, to work on that kind of stuff. I mean, religion news service is a wire, right? Yeah. So it it uh, we write stories and they're on our own website, but they are also republished by our subscribers, which mm-hmm. range from religious outlets like Christianity Today or National Catholic Reporter to um, you know more secular outlets like the Washington Post or at the time. Um, Huffington Post, which at the time was like this very you know, kind of the front page of the internet, mm-hmm. and it was pretty intoxicating to be able to write a story, file it at three o'clock. And by the time I got home at night, it was on the front page of the Huffington Post. Yeah. And so, um, and I, but what I really did, what I found in that work was that there was this interesting niche of the way that religion, which I knew you know a good bit about mm-hmm. and politics which i knew yeah you know, as much as anyone can know about politics the thing that's constantly changing um <laughs> those two seem to overlap quite a bit and when i was either on the hill as an intern or calling up activists or you know interviewing senators you know it seemed like a real hunger to want to talk about these overlaps and how this is the the the, the intersection of religion and politics actually is impacting laws and legislation and people's daily lives but there just wasn't a ton of coverage on it. And so, um, I ended up, 
you know, I went after divinity school, so a year left, um, ended up working at think progress where I did, I could basically convince them to create a position that allowed me to write about the intersection of religion and politics and ended up coming home to religion news service a few years later. Um, and I, I just bring all that up to say that for me, I was always kind of drawn to those same, those two things, religion and politics. And the great thing about journalism is that I basically, for a job, get to go to these places, talk to these really interesting people, and then turn around to the American public and say, isn't this cool? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Isn't interesting? Is this was, fascinating? Or isn't this horrible? Or you know, it, I get to tell people about what I've encountered. Yeah, I was thinking so, uh, as I was uh, getting ready to log on to, to do the interview that that Jack's job is sitting in front of a keyboard and typing out stories. And the only time he's not doing that is when he's talking to somebody about what he's going to type on the keyboard to get out the story, (laughs) which is not, I mean, that's not bad. You know, it's um, for those of us who like to write, there is some amount of professional envy involved in that because uh, anybody who's a blogger probably has some kind of weird dream in the back of their mind about, man, I'd like to write for so-and-so and and get paid and do his job. Um, So, um, so talk a little bit about some of the stories, say, of late, you know, not early in your career when you were writing about dogs being blessed at the local church, but um, <laughs> stories. Didn't of, write a story. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't write, but you didn't write the cat cult story, buddy. No, no, I did not. No, I didn't. <laughs> hey, um, so of late, so say in the last, I don't know, three years, uh, what are some of the stories that you've written on that as you were writing, you really got a sense that not just this is an interesting story, but this is really an important story for me to get out for people to be able to read. Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'd like to think that all of my stories sure. are equally amazing, but that's not necessarily true. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, some of them were things that lots of other people covered, right? So the resurgence of the Catholic sex abuse crisis, mm-hmm. a lot of us covered that. And relatedly, um, you know, in, increased uh, attention paid to abuse in other religious communities was something that, you know, speaking with survivors and then also, um, you know, writing about the different power structures involved in those, both the Catholic Church or even Southern Baptist Convention or what have you. You know, those are definitely stories that a lot of people covered um, that, you know, I was uh, I was also part of that reporting wave um, that I felt was important. But you know, other things that I got to cover that I think were harder for other people to see um, were finding kind of the faith angle or the faith element in places that other people might not look for. It. So, for instance, last year when there was the clearing of protesters and demonstrators at Lafayette Square mm-hmm. in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., um, that was you know, kind of an infamous moment where um, you know all these hundreds of demonstrators who were protesting for racial justice as part of that wave of demonstrations that followed the um, killing of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Um, they were forcibly removed from this park in D.C. before um, then President Trump walked across that park and then held up a Bible in front of um, St. John's Church, mm-hmm. an Episcopal church. And what was, you know, what felt interesting to me is that the, the clear intent of the White House at that point was because that church had been damaged the night before in a fire um, by, you know, demonstrators or activists or, 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 you know, writers, mm-hmm. um, they were, there, there was this an attempt to try to, you know, Trump gave this speech to say, you know, we want to protect these houses of worship and how, and there had been this narrative of the Trump administration that they were very big on religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, activists had contested that position, more liberal leaning religious activists had protested that, that the authentic, 
authenticity of that position for several years. And I think that what was interesting is that among what I quickly learned through reporting channels and sources that I had, and also, you know, just speaking with um, the uh, Episcopal Bishop of Washington, who was incensed that the Trump, uh, that Trump had done this, mm-hmm. um, was that among the foes who were forcibly cleared that day were clergy, mm-hmm. um, Episcopal clergy who were there handing out water to demonstrators in that moment. And so, you know, in the same moment where the, uh, the president was trying to con- project this one message about religious institutions, you know, what immediately preceded that moment was forcibly removing clergy mm. who were at that church at the behest of the, um, of the denomination itself, um, you know, participating in the demonstration mm. that was removed, um, by federal forces. And so I bring that up to say, like, this was a story where I felt like, you know, it'd be really easy to not get a complete picture of what's going on um, there, that you could you could not know that you, you, it would be easy to kind of fall into this sort of easy binary where the Trump administration represents, quote unquote, religion and um, and those outside were representing, quote unquote, uh, the demonstrators were representing, quote unquote, like secular activism. And the reality is far more complex and more um, and, and more you know interesting, frankly. Um, there were also other clergy who were down there in among the demonstrators, not handing out water, but actively demonstrating yeah. as we found out later. So that was an interesting thing that I um, felt was was important to kind of report on. And, and you know, more recently, obviously, well, hang on, hang on. There's, um, some, there's something oh, about that particular story I want to uh, kind of break in and, and uh, commend you on, and that is that either in your original story. Or a follow-up, I can't remember which, there was this big issue about whether tear gas was actually used. <laughs> right. And uh, I think but. you might have been the first uh, reporter to actually say tear gas was used. I don't remember if you were the first, but you were among the first for sure. And so you caught some some pretty major flack about that from one particular <coughs> Federalist <coughs> uh, outlet that mm-hmm. um, that went to great lengths to try to de-explain uh, or to explain and deconstruct the narrative that tear gas was used by using all, I don't know, chemical compounds and all the stuff that was just way, way, way out there. Well, you, I don't know what you did, but you followed up in some way and you're like, no, we're not going to back off of this. And I think uh, Bob Smetana, who maybe was your editor at the time, I can't remember for sure, mm-hmm. uh, yes. also was like, no, we're going to stick with this. We're pretty sure this is accurate. And then, and then it became like, okay, are the rest of you guys going to correct your story? Because now we've been proven right. And you guys are still <laughs> saying that it wasn't tear gas. I mean, what was it like in that moment to know that you're going against like other outlets to try to to stand, stand beside what you had said and necessarily then standing against them and proving that they were actually wrong in their, their assertions. Right. I mean, this is, this is an interesting journalistic moment, right? Where you do, you know, you, when you hear a criticism of saying uh, from a, from an authority figure or for someone else that says, no, this didn't happen. You, know, you do as a, as a journalist, you do due diligence. You mm-hmm. go back and say, okay, well, Let's, let's make sure that this is something that we're comfortable putting out there. Do we need to issue a, retra- a retraction or correction? Mm-hmm. But, you know, we had these activists that had been there physically on the ground, and they were describing it to us as tear gas. There were also journalists who were there that day 
who were, you know, live um, reporting for television outlets that were calling it tear gas. And then subsequently, they had reporters who had gone and picked up the projectiles <laughs> that had been thrown at them and like, you know, and had filmed them and took pictures of them right. that not only were they, because there was this, there was an interesting debate that one pepper spray under, um, I believe it's the CDC, it might be the FDA, someone can correct me on that, is already classified as tear gas and just pepper spray is mm-hmm. already. Um, and they were definitely using pepper balls. That was undisputed. Mm-hmm. It was whether or not they used this one specific kind of gas that may be more specific to that. And it turns out they had, they people found canisters right. at their reporters did that, that even that gas was absolutely used there. And so, and again, it's one of those things where what was fascinating, um, you know, for me as a journalist is like, you know, how narratives get spun where, you had hundreds of demonstrators who were forcibly cleared, including clergy, from in from the you know, in front of a church and from this field. And the narrative is about what kind of mechanisms people right. use um, to do that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, like you know, to my knowledge, the 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 outlet that it wasn't just religion news service; it was several other outlets mm-hmm. who, um, you know, this one particular outlet wrote this you know Challenge piece saying news, that y'all yeah. need mm-hmm. to issue. Um, you know, issue corrections and retractions when even that additional evidence was provided. And I wrote a follow up story in which I interviewed some other activists who were there where they reaffirmed like what this did to their bodies mm. and to their eyes. Um, the, I mean, no matter what, it was gas that made people cry. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> and so at least that's what was, was told to me by these demonstrators and activists who were there and the clergy. Um, but you know, the, to my knowledge, they haven't issued it or correction yeah. to that story yeah. critiquing us us asking for so um so to answer your original question yeah we deal with a lot so yeah so uh jack you may or may not have heard that uncommentary was named by christianity today one of the 12 podcasts you don't want to miss did you hear about that <laughs> <laughs> I, I was made aware of that. Yeah, recently. yeah. Yes. So I'm pretty excited about that. And you're the uh, you're the first guest since that news broke. So I'm I'm really happy about it. And I want to follow on to that by saying that I'm going to be announcing a huge giveaway in the next episode. So if you're just now climbing on because you heard uh, from CT or you saw a tweet or something like that, then welcome. And I hope you'll go ahead and subscribe. And if you're listening and have been listening and you still haven't left a rating or a review please do that. That'll help so much. It's so encouraging to me that you would do that and be listening for the next episode when I'll be talking about a huge, and when I say huge, I mean like for this podcast, this is like a ginormous giveaway. Thanks to a really gracious benefactor. So you want to catch the next episode. Um, Jack, talk a little bit about your book. So um, I had uh, Andrew Whitehead, I think on a, a number of episodes ago talking about Christian nationalism. And he surprised me because I'm, I'm from, I'm also from the South and I'm very mm-hmm. familiar, you know, with the Confederacy and the, you know, the Confederate battle flag and all those big arguments that we've been having for decades down here. Um, and so I'm very familiar with the more right wing, what I've always thought of as Christian nationalism, uh, the patriotism and Lee Greenwood and all this stuff that kind of forms how I've always thought about that. Well, in their book, uh, Whitehead and I guess it's Sam Perry, maybe, uh, talk about how there's a, a more liberal or left side of Christian nationalism. And I was totally shocked about that. Well, your book seems to, I don't know that you use these terms, but you're kind of touching into this area, this more progressive type of Christianity that gets involved in politics and has certain uh, ideas and certain goals. So kind of what drew you into to writing about this as opposed to the other side of it? And, and what are some of the things that you found as you were writing? 
Well, uh, a couple of things. I don't know precisely what um, Andrew Whitehead was referring to when he talked about liberal iterations of Christian nationalism. That is a thing that exists in the sense that there are um, people who are liberal and religious for whom Christian nationalism is not anathema. Mm-hmm. But what? But interestingly, the kinds of activists that I was mostly concentrating on um, in my book are actually people who really don't like Christian nationalism. Yeah. And in fact, some of them literally decry it as a heresy. Um, but to answer your question, so, you know, one of the things when I was, um, I told you earlier about when I interned at RNS, so yes. I actually got hired on uh, as a contractor um, during my third year in divinity school. And, um, and I, uh, one of the first stories I was able to write um, in, on the contract basis uh, was they, the Occupy Wall Street movement was occurring. Mm-hmm. And in bo- the largest, one of the largest iterations of that in terms of um, the physical size of the encampment was actually Occupy Boston. And, um, and I went down there one day because I had learned that there was a interfaith prayer tent that was part of the Occupy oh, wow. camp there. Mm-hmm. And people were, you know, and, and, and I knew some of the people because, you know, in divinity school, I run into some of these folks who were activists. Mm-hmm. And so I went down there and I was aware that there were people of faith that um, were Democrats and liberals and that there was, and I was, you know, aware that they often didn't get the same amount of attention in the public sphere right. as the religious right did. Right. I mean, you know, like <laughs> I, I, you know, Barack Obama had made no shortage of, of, of talking about scripture, but it didn't get the same didn't capture the well, same dude, amount that's, of it. Obviously, that's because he's a Muslim in disguise. Come on now. <laughs> that was, well, it's, oh, I, there's just so many, so many elements. Um, but the, I think what's, what's fascinating about what, what I found fascinating about that trip down to that encampment was that these people who were gathered there, um, and there were different people from different faith traditions who were in this prayer camp were articulating this belief in a really liberal progressive economics um and 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 like not in a forced way like this was like this was an expression of their faith and i realized that they were all referencing other events that they had been to other activism moments that they had participated mm-hmm. in and they kind of gave me this moment of realizing how big this this sub movement um of the left might be and so you know, when i went on to continue reporting for religion news service and then later at think progress I kept finding more and more pockets of these you know, progressive faith activists in other movements, mm-hmm. whether that was Native Americans who were working, who were advocating against pipelines and for environmental concerns, who were in many ways the nexus of the climate and environmentalist movement here in the United States. And when you, and they were all doing it, that these Native American and indigenous activists were invoking their faith repeatedly and constantly while they were doing it. Um, and they weren't, but it wasn't covered as a religious event or, you know, whether it was within the LGBTQ rights space, you had many of the activists within that space who were, um, you know, deeply religious and articulating their faith, even if that was in direct conflict with their, um, home faith tradition. But you even saw that in like the strategists for, mm-hmm. you know, say the same sex marriage, ca- various same sex marriage campaigns, they were often invoking religious messages and finding as many religious messengers as they could. Um, and then, of course, there was the new sanctuary movement when there was this push to try back against the deportation of undocumented mm-hmm. immigrants. And um, these these churches and synagogues and mosques, what have you, um, started welcoming undocumented immigrants to live in their um, sanctuary right. in direct defiance of federal law so that they could get their cases 
dropped. And, and, and what I found was that these people were actually having quite a bit of influence um, right up until the point where, you know, one of the key people that Barack Obama himself credits as helping get the Affordable Care Act passed, one of the landmark pieces of liberal legislation of the 21st century um, over the last hundred years, really. Um, he credits Catholic nuns as helping getting that across the finish line. And when you talk to people who had worked in the um, Affordable Care Act advocacy space, they were quick to cite the nuns as key and crucial to getting that passed. That and is I realized weird because didn't, these, didn't some of the nuns actually end up suing the, the government because they, they felt like it had overreached in requiring, I guess it was birth control or something like that? So did they help it over the finish line and turn around and say, hey, wait a minute, y'all snuck something by here? Well, this is a good question because this actually speaks to the diversity of religious belief here in the United States. So the, what ended up happening is that Catholic nuns, um, there were a lot of Catholic Democrats who wanted to support, um, support the Affordable Care Act, but the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops came out against the Affordable Care Act, expressing concerns over abortion. Okay. And in the, the head of the Catholic Health Association, which oversees all of the, or, you know, it's in, is part of this giant conglomerate of Catholic hospitals, mm -hmm. um, is a nun. And she came out, Sister Carol Kean came out against, I mean, in favor mm -hmm. of the Affordable Care Act. And then this group of, uh, leadership, um, the LCWR, which is the largest group of Catholic nuns here in the United States, the various leaders of those groups also came out in direct defiance of the bishops <laughs> on this. Um, and, and, and I detail this in the book. It, they actually paid a price for that. Um, I mean, they, you know, one of those, Sister Simone Campbell, who just recently um, retired as head of network, a Catholic social justice lobby here in D.C., she was at the signing ceremony of the ACA, and, and Barack Obama actually saved a pen um, that he signed the document with for Sister Carol Kean, who I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened after that is that um, there was actually an investigation launched by the Vatican into um, Amer U.S. nuns. And the, the the nuns I've spoken with said that it was uh, pretty clear to them that the impetus for to, for that investigation was that they felt the nuns had overstepped by super you know by superseding wow. the bishops. And the subtext for all of this is that in public polling, it turns out that Catholic nuns are more popular than Catholic bishops. <laughs> oh, and I can so, I can definitely understand <laughs> that. And so the the Catholic nuns ended up having um, you know more clout when it comes to a democracy um, you know in that way than the bishops necessarily had in that moment. All of which is to say there are some nuns um, who in, you know in concert with the bishops took issue with elements of the Affordable Care mm -hmm. Act, and then that ended up being part of the lawsuit. But while we were made very aware of that element of Catholic pushback the Affordable Care Act, that obscured the fact that, again, the largest group of Catholic nuns in the country came out in favor of it and put it all on the line in defiance of the Vatican to wow. help get it passed. So those stories like that, I realized, were being buried everywhere. And so mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to dig deeper and tell some of those stories for my book. So um, so what was the response? I haven't uh, – cards on the table here. I haven't read it. I don't have a copy. I missed the <laughs> I missed the launch party somehow or another. Um, what was the, what was the reception? Did you get, I mean, was it split along like partisan divides? Did all the, your liberal friends love it and all of your conservative friends like, dude, I, you know, I'm not spending any money on that trash. I mean, how, how was it received? Was there a sense of where people were like, Hey, this is, this is really enlightening. This is helping me, or I can identify with this. What, how did that turn out? Um, you know, it's a mixture of all, I, I will say that, um, some of the emails and letters I've received as, as a result of this publication were for people for whom 
this was really important for them to know, right? Mm-hmm. Like they felt like they, they didn't feel that they, these are, you know, liberal people of faith of multiple faiths, not just Christian, but Muslim and Jewish, what have you, who were saying, you know, they felt alone and knowing that there's this larger movement out there, various varieties made them feel less alone. There were also those for whom this was just like, you know, um, a reaffirmation of the activism or the beliefs that they'd held for some time. But I have also had emails from conservatives who said, look, you know, I didn't know any of this. Mm. And this actually, you know, like for them, the at least a few letters I've gotten in this regard that, that explicitly articulated this, you know, people were saying, hey, I didn't really consider the I, I there's a line that conservatives often use called the godless left, this idea that, yeah. you know, di- left in general and Democrats in particular are a religious or anti religious. Mm. And for some of these conservatives, they're like, well, I don't agree with the, either the mm. theology or the politics of these people, but I do believe that they are people of faith. Mm. And for that, that was apparently transformative for them to kind of open their eyes to see the larger religious landscape here in the United States. Um, and, you know, and definitely I got people who, you know, send me hate mail saying that this is just, that it couldn't possibly <laughs> um, be the case that, you know, that, that these people aren't really religious if they hold these values, yeah, that, yeah. Um, that somehow religion stopped whenever their denomination got founded and everything right. else before or after it was wrong. Um, and so it's just one of those things where I, I got a, a range of responses um, that I didn't expect. Now, I will also note that I wrote this book at a time when the religious right was like first beginning to do something they haven't done in a long time, which is actually actively and vocally critique and condemn the religious left. That had often not been the case because the religious right had often taken the posture of ignoring the religious left, right. the modern integration. Because the last time they fought with them back in the early 20th century, back when liberal Christianity in particular was actually the ascendant in, um, faith influence of the day, um, the religious right of that era arguably lost. And so um, it's interesting to kind of see them, you know, you know, also kind of come out against this group. And now I've even seen, um, you know, there's a new, there's other books and there's new articles that are being written of people who are, they might cite my book or they might just cite these movements that they're seeing um, in which faith, people of faith are at the helm mm-hmm. who are liberal and saying we need, you know, as conservative Christians or conservative people of faith, we need to combat this. So there's more dialogue about this phenomenon now yeah. than I saw it when I began writing the book. Hey, um, let's let, let me ask you a question about your specific area of professional experience, uh, journalism. Um, most conservatives uh, seem to see, and and my to- I mean my background is conservatism. Uh, that's how I was raised. It's what I adhere to. I uh, joyfully called myself that politically and theologically. Um, theologically, I'm, I mean, I don't know how other to describe myself theologically than conservative, uh, but politically I've just decided I'm not going to take on any of those labels because what I think the Bible leads to is outside of any of those categories. And so to call myself one of those things limits what I think the Bible teaches about all of those things. So that, but conservatives, and I was this way tend to view, uh, journalists, the press, the media, uh, the mainstream media as this behemoth of anti-Christian activity. You know, everybody's doing what they can to destroy the church and to put down the, you know, what God would have us to do or have us to know to silence the voice of conservatives, all these kinds of things. Uh, what's the best way to think about, I, I think 
you know, polling has demonstrated that most journalists are either center left or solidly liberal. That's one of the reasons they got into journalism because they believe in the freedom of the press. But how do you address, if you were addressing a, a group, an audience, uh, you know, somebody who paid $10 to come here, you talk about the state of American journalism. How would you address this idea that the media landscape is irredeemably liberal and they can't be fair and everything is against conservative belief. Right. And I will tell you what's, this is something I think we as religion journalists run into quite frequently, but in an awkward way, right? Because I cover, my book is on the religious left and, you know, about, you know, religious liberals. And there's a, there's one chapter in which I kind of really focus on religious conservatives in which I, spoke to Andrew Whitehead, by the way, inside his book, um, inside his work. And, but that was actually kind of difficult for me because literally half of, of what I feel like I've spent a lot of my time on in the last, you know, few years has been covering religious conservatives right. and speaking with <laughs> and interviewing religious conservatives. And so it was hard now, for Jack, me to fit you're, all that. You're only covering them so that you can silence them. You need to be honest. Right. <laughs> um, uh, wow. I did a really poor job of silencing them, like constantly telling you what they're saying. Um, but I mean, like, you know, it, it's one of those things, though, that, you know, one thing I do think is true. I am not a journalist who pretends that objectivity is an achievable goal mm -hmm. in the sense that I don't think I think bias is inherent to the human condition. Mm -hmm. We all have biases. The, the, the virtuous call of a journalist is to recognize that about yourself and still write a fair story anyway. And I think that's for me. And, you know, I, I, I consider myself fortunate in that, you know, I was I'm from South Carolina, from a military family. Um, the only reason I wasn't born in South Carolina is because I was born in D.C. when my father was stationed at the Pentagon. <laughs> right. And uh, um, and, you know, and I got I mean, my family on both sides has been, you know, in the South for generations and generations now. You know, I have deep Trump supporters and, you know, deep liberals in, in my family mm -hmm. at the same time. Thanksgiving is always an interesting experience. Um, and so navigating that, that divide, you know, for me has been helpful to, you know, help navigating the, the diversity of belief, um, that I encounter in my job. But, you know, I do think that, you know, critiquing the media and asking for better journalism about your group or your perspective, I think that's okay. I think that's good. I think conservatives, liberals, and any number of religious groups that I've covered poorly that have corrected me after the fact, <laughs> um, you know, I think that's a, that's a, that's a healthy, um, healthy um, thing to do as part of, you know, critiquing the fourth estate, as we mm. often call it. But, you know, and I do think journalists should learn from that. It, it's, you know, there's, you should not ignore voices just because you disagree with them. You do that at their your, your peril, because then you'll miss an important story journalistically, not to mention, you know, like, uh, effectively silence a voice. But at the same time, I think, you know, sometimes in those critiques, they will, you know, kind of lump all these journalists together as if we're some part of one giant cabal that all hangs out together and makes mm. plans together. And, and that there's some master puppeteer paying us all money. Well, we're like, most of us are underpaid and all of our, like a lot of us have had organizations that go under and all of us think that our, uh, you know, our outlets are going to fold for lack of money at all times. So I, I, we're not really aware of who these secret funders are, if that's the case. Um, so you're not and, getting and any of that. Look, you're not getting any of that sweet George Soros money. Come on, Jack. It's, it's, it's you know, it's just one of those things where I, I haven't I keep waiting for that extra check and it's just not coming um, from from, you know, whatever the, the liberal puppeteer is. But I, I do think, you know, it's an I would, I would what I would ask back um, 
to those who criticize the media as irredeemably liberal is that, you know, you should encourage them to tell your stories mm-hmm. um, and you should try to, you know, speak to them, demonizing them and telling them that, every, you know, that, that they simply don't, don't ignore you, even when they write about you constantly, usually isn't the most helpful form of criticism. <laughs> but I would, I would welcome, uh, and I have welcomed, you know, this, this, criticism of saying, can we be better? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would just be, you know, remind people that I think that journalists are, are people too, and are human beings trying to do good work. And you should call out, you know, falsehoods or inaccuracies or misleading um, elements when you see them, but also, you know, reach out to journalists, mm-hmm. say like, Hey, do you know about this story? Do you know about what's happening in my town? And you won't get a response from all of them, but you might be surprised by how many journalists, religion journalists or political journalists or otherwise might say, hey, actually, I do think this is a really good story. And even if you think that they disagree with you and all things, they still might write a really good story about what you care about. See, I think that's an important point that that if you can get in contact with a reporter, even if it's someone you disagree with on a bunch of issues, that if you've got a story that has some value to either your community or the nation or the world, then that journalist is interested in telling that story. I mean, some, sure, they're in it for, you know, they want their name on the, on the byline. So if it's a great story, mm-hmm. they're going to get it out there so their name is associated with it. You know, everybody's got some amount of ambition. That doesn't mean it's that they're doing a wrong thing because they might want their name out there. But I think it is a valid point that journalists, uh, they make their living by telling stories. They make their living by reporting what's going on somewhere at some moment in time. And if you're conservative, then, and you call your local paper, whether it's the the Tennessean or the Atlanta journal constitution and say, Hey, I've got a story. There's a, you know, a hostage situation on my street. And I don't think anybody's down here covering it. (laughs) It's not like they're going to, you know, give you a 10 point question about how you voted in the last election before they take your information (laughs) down. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I, I just don't be afraid to reach out. You know, like journalists are stressed and juggling a lot of things, but and, and attrition also sometimes works. As long mm-hmm. as we feel that somebody's reaching out to us in good I have responded to people after the third email and I've been like, you know what, this is a really good story. Um, let me call you back. And I and again, I'm not I'm not checking their voting status when yeah. I do that. Well, this is Marty Duran. I've been talking to Jack Jenkins with Religion News Service, and he is the author of American Prophets. The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country, published by, as we noted before, Harper One. Um, you're on a lot of different social media, but I see you mostly on Twitter, and it's at Jack. Is it Jack underscore Jenkins? Tell me what that is. Jack M. Jenkins. Um, my middle name is McDowell, for those who want to know. So Jack M. Jenkins okay, um, cool. is my Twitter handle. At Jack M. Jenkins. You definitely want to follow him. Check out his stories at RNS and wherever uh, The Wire takes those. Uh, Jack, thanks for hanging out, man. This has been very informative, and I'm super glad that you were able to do this. Oh, thank you so much for bringing it on, bringing me on. I, I appreciate it, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm an honor to be on one of the uh, best um, podcasts according to Christianity Today. Dang straight. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. 
Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. <laughs>